Um, We're going to step into the text, getting back into the book of John again, John chapter 2. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we do that. Would you bow with me? Father, our hearts are are ready and we are prepared to be intercepted by you. For some of us, it's going to catch us by surprise and others, our, our hearts are ready and ripe. But that's the way your spirit works. Um, sometimes it's just, it, it's just a total shock. And other times we're just so hungry for it that we're searching every place. Oh God, I ask that you would take away any blinders that are on eyes this morning. Uh, take away all the distractions. And give us the capacity to see and the wisdom. Give us the ears to hear. And speak through the text. The things that you caused to be written down thousands of years ago have application to our life today. And so, Father, we would ask that you would show us what you want us to know. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be present and that you would give us a capacity beyond our understanding. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So I ask the question, what is God's portrait looking like so far? Because we're in the book of John, and we understand John 1.18 says that no man has seen God at any time. No one's ever seen him but that Jesus explains him. That's what Scripture says. So we call this the portrait because Jesus is explaining God. And as we work through this text, we see that there's little brush strokes taking place on the canvas of all these different descriptions. Last week, we got to see Jesus at a wedding where he was making wine and the celebration that was taking place. And we see the social side of God in which he engages with his creation, wanting to be present among them. I had a a realization this week that this God who desires to be with me was imprinted upon me when I was a child listening to my mom sing. My mom had a favorite song, and she loved to work outside, and uh, I asked her why she sang it so much. Same song over and over again. Um, She said because her mom passed it on to her. It's an old hymn. um, It's called In the Garden might be familiar to some of you. It goes something like this. I come to the garden. Now, let's see. Help me, Michael. I come to the garden alone. While the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear. You're familiar with that? Okay. Most of you are familiar with that if you grew up in church. There's a cool part about the chorus. And it really was impressed upon me this week. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That walking component, that God wants to walk with you, just hit me upside the head this week. I realized that what my mom was doing was exercising this desire, verbalizing, I want to walk with God because it's embedded within us, church. It's ancient. It goes way, way back to the time of the garden. Let me take you to Genesis 3.8 on the screen before we go to John 2. And I want you to see this so you understand this desire God has to walk with you. They heard, meaning Adam and Eve, 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This word presence is panim. It means the face. The presence is the face of someone. So my mom, when she's singing that song, she's saying, God, I desire your presence. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. There's that comfort of knowing that God desires to be in your presence and wants you in his presence. So when do you not want to see the face of someone? When you have harmed them. When you have breached the relationship. When you have caused so much disruption in the relationship like Adam and Eve did. That's why it says they hid themselves from the presence of God because they broke the relationship. Sin entered the world and it came rushing in. To the point where this place, this garden where God met with man didn't work anymore. They had to check out. They're hiding from the presence of God because there's this disruption. So this breach in the relationship in the garden is eventually replaced because God desires for you to meet with Him and you desire to understand God and meet with Him. So God, through the children of Israel, the chosen people, to establish His presence on earth again, said, go ahead and build this thing called the tabernacle. This thing that was built of animal skins and canvases and stretched out, and it was portable, and they could break it down and set it up. It's like a giant tent. And they could haul it with them throughout the wilderness. And God's presence was there. And once again, they had something like the garden among them where they could go and meet with God. But eventually, this tabernacle came to be understood as a place where God would walk with man again. So we see up on the screen, Deuteronomy 23.14, this statement made about God. The Lord your God walks in your midst. Because God desires to walk again with man. And also again in Leviticus 26.12, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So this concept of God walking with us is ancient. It goes back to the very beginning of mankind. And it carries through to 2011. God's desire to have you in His presence and your desire to be in His presence. The word that's used in the Hebrew language is the word halak. This is what it means, the definition. It's a primitive word. It means to walk along, to be conversant. So it's not just destination from point A to point B. It means conversant along the way. To be in one's present means to make contact with them. We might use this language. We might say, let's take a stroll. Now, when we say, let's take a stroll, we know there's more going on there than just walking from point A to point B, don't we? So God's saying, let's take a stroll. Be occupied with me. Now, eventually, this tabernacle was replaced. 
King Solomon came into power, and God decided that he would allow mankind to build an actual structure, a temple. This history is very important for John chapter 2 so that you understand what's going on in the text. So the tabernacle is replaced, and then a temple is built. And we see in 1 Kings 6, 1, Solomon gets the privilege of building the temple. Look with me on the screen. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now this temple, Solomon's temple, is the one most of us in 2011 are familiar with, mostly because of Indiana Jones and the lost ark. Okay, so we're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. This is what an artist believes it probably looked like, covered in gold. I think the eagles might have been a little bit bigger that were spread out over, actually the cherubim, but the large wings. Those rods that are on, they're something they put over their shoulders so they could carry the Ark of the Covenant. Now, man never got to see that. Just one person did, the high priest. It sat inside in the very center of the temple in this area known as the Holy of Holies. Only once a year could the high priest go in before it. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the center of the temple. The temple was the place mankind came to worship God, to be in His presence. But Israel once again breached the relationship, and the Babylonians swept in and destroyed the temple, carried off all the gold, all the precious instruments, and then after 70 years, the Israelites were released from captivity. They went back to Israel And they built another temple, the second temple, the temple called the Temple of Zerubbabel. But when the people saw it, they cried because it was nothing in comparison to the former temple, the Temple of Solomon. Now, the things that we understand about this new temple that was built in replacement of it, Solomon's temple, had something in the way of an aqueduct system. Let's go back one slide, Paul, if you don't mind. There you go. This, this is how elaborate this temple was, church. Solomon actually built an aqueduct system that came from northern Israel that they buried underground like a piping system to deliver water from what's known as the pools of Solomon to get it all the way down to the temple because there was so much blood from the sacrifice of the animals. Tens of thousands of animals on Passover. Some believe hundreds of thousands. And so they didn't have enough water pressure in Jerusalem. They had to deliver enough head pressure to wash away all the blood from the altar floor. And so Solomon had this aqueduct system built. This, this actually came from a museum. It's sitting in the museum um, over in New York City where they discovered this aqueduct system in Israel. So that's how elaborate it was, and that's why the people wept when they saw the new structure. And then this second temple was built and then greatly expanded by King Herod, 19 years before Jesus. Herod began a construction project, and it went on for 46 years. And then in 70 A.D., the Romans swept in, and they destroyed the temple. This is that image of the temple being destroyed, being sacked by the Romans. And today, it does not exist. It's completely gone, and it's been replaced with a mosque. It's called the Dome of the Rock. This gold-covered image that you see in the center of the picture is where Islam built a mosque over the top of the former temple, hoping and believing that one day the the temple would never be rebuilt if there's a mosque there. 
So what we have today in our lifetime is a representation. When you see the western wailing wall of God once again seeing people who breached the relationship and allowing the temple to be removed, this place where they had the presence of God is no more. So join me in John chapter 2 so you understand there's just a few verses here in which John tells us about something that happened in the temple. John chapter 2 and verse 12. John believed this was such a significant event of all the things he could have written down. This is one that he chose when he's in his 90s looking back over his life to write down a record for us so we understand this is a significant event. And John understood it. So our task is to learn why was it so significant and what are the implications for our life today? John chapter 2 and verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after this, meaning the events that we read about last week, so when it says after this, we're talking about after the wedding, the wedding that we read about last week. After the wedding, Jesus went to Capernaum, then he made his way up to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, the tradition was that every Jewish male, 20 years of age and older, would be present in Jerusalem for the Passover. They had to be there. It was compulsory. And if you were going to be there with your family, it was expected that you would stay within the city limits of Jerusalem. So the mayor or the governor of that region actually expanded the city limits during this period of time because two million people would sweep in to Jerusalem just for the Passover. It was such a spectacular event. Now, some Jews were very wealthy, and they owned two homes. They had a home in northern Israel, and they had a home in Jerusalem, and they could go back and forth. Most, though, needed to create a tent city, and they camped outside the city limits. So think like the Olympics or like the Super Bowl today, a very, very big national event. And this meant big business. If you were a merchant in Jerusalem and you had two million people that came in looking for lodging and looking for all the necessities that go along with it, this was an opportunity to make a haul, to bring money into your pockets. Now, the temple, the second temple that was built that we were talking about, the temple that was expanded by Herod was built to accommodate tens of thousands of people. I came across a video that I want you to see to help you imagine this scene through the eyes of Jesus. It was built by some guys from UCLA, an architectural team, working with some rabbis from Israel together to construct visually what it might have meant to stand in the court of the Gentiles and see this spance. So I want you to see this video. No soundtrack with it. Just watch this imagery so you can appreciate this. The great colonnade in Solomon's court, entering into the court of the Gentiles. What you're seeing covers a 50-acre area. The massive structure. You can see how this court of Gentiles would accommodate many thousands of people. In the background, you see a little smoke going up. That's where the altar was at, behind the wall. The common people couldn't get there, only in the area of the court of men. Outside of the court of men was the court of women. Outside of the court of women was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where Jesus steps into as we pick up this scene. Jesus enters the courtyard, and there's thousands of people milling around. 
Look with me at verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. So what's going on here? You've got the presence of God, the temple, and you've got big business taking place. There was a high priest at this period of time by the name of Annas, or Ananias, as you see him in Scripture. He had a son-in-law. His name was Caiaphas. The two of them served as joint high priests, even though it was against God's law. There were two high priests, and there weren't supposed to be. But they kept the business in the family. As a matter of fact, for 50 years, Annas and Caiaphas kept the business within the family. They controlled this marketplace within the temple walls. It was known as the Bazaar of Ananias or the Bazaar of Annas. And this guy was so determined to expand his wallet at the expense of people and corrupt his position as the high priest that he turned the court of the Gentiles into a Walmart. Let me show you a quote from a historian by the name of Josephus. He wrote some comments about Ananias. Look it up on the screen. But for the high priest Ananias, or Annas, he increased in glory every day, and this to a great degree, for he was a great hoarder up of money. He also had servants who were very wicked, who went to the thrashing floors and took away the tithes by violence, and did not refrain from beating such as would not give tithes to them. So the other high priests acted in like manner as did those his servants without anyone being able to prohibit them, so that some of old were wont to be supported, died for want of food. You understand? People are starving to death because these guys are so corrupt. Their marketplace is so important to them that they're taking money from the poor and the old and they're letting them starve to death. Now, if you were to buy a dove outside the walls of the temple, street value... It would cost you, in today's money, a dollar. If you were to go inside the walls of the temple, that same dove would cost you $10. So logically, we'd say, well, why not bring your own animals as a sacrifice then? Well, you could. Deuteronomy said everybody was supposed to bring their own sacrifice. As a matter of fact, what we're seeing here are some lazy worshipers that over a period of time, slowly, it crept in to the point where it was inconvenient to bring my own animals. And so I'll just buy the animals. And eventually they bought their animals for the sacrifice. The pigeons, the doves, the goats, the sheep. To the degree that Ananias saw this as an opportunity for huge business profits. And he began skimming off the top. So what, here's what he did. He sold franchises. He sold marketplace franchises to people to set up booths with inside the court of the Gentiles. And not only did he sell the franchises, he skimmed a percentage off the top for himself. And then he gave franchise rights to concessionaires. So eventually, if you brought your own animal and you wanted to bring it for a sacrifice to the temple, it had to be approved by the priest. And if you brought an animal that wasn't approved by the priest, well, then you had to buy one at an exorbitant fee. And this is where they took advantage of them. Think of like going to an NFL football game or a Major League Baseball game today. What you paid for a bottle of Pepsi outside the gate is way different than what you pay for one inside, right? Okay? You get the picture of what's going on. And Ananias and Caiaphas became filthy rich. 
One historian studied this and believes that they were raking in $160 million a year in today's money because people had to go to this place to worship God. And the result was the temple became a major banking exchange like Wall Street. They had corrupted it to that degree. So imagine with me, you're going to the temple and you want to find a place to pray, to worship God. Can you envision coming up the steps of New Hope and finding cattle in the atrium? The smell alone, moving the animals aside, listening to the bickering of businessmen, individuals who are fighting over money, watching out where you stepped as you come in the door. That's the environment that Jesus sees, and it sounds like the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, let alone the aroma. Is that a place to encounter God? This is not where you would seek God's presence. And so this enrages Jesus, and he explodes into action. Pick it up with me in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So the scourge of cords appears to have been maybe from straps of leather that were hanging on the wall to tie the animals with. And Jesus takes them and makes it into a whip and literally drove them out, cracking the whip, chasing them out. And it erupts into wild confusion. Animals going every place, running aimlessly. Birds flying. And the priests begin rushing in because the officials are arguing. Coins are rolling across the floor. And we see this detail that John gives us. Jesus actually took the bag and poured out the coins and dumped it on the floor. Every 20-year-old man coming in there had to give what's known as a half shekel for a temple offering. It was a compulsory offering. And so this trumpet that they would put the coins in uh, when, when they gave their offering was shaped in the, the shape of a trumpet, a large jar, and there were seven of them. And when they would drop their coins in, it would make a ringing sound, like the sounding of a trumpet. So this half shekel that they dropped in had to be temple-approved money, no Chuck E. Cheese money. It had to actually have the image of the temple on it. couldn't have the image of the Caesar on it couldn't have the image of Rome on it. But if you needed to exchange money, there was a 25% markup fee. And that's the coinage that Jesus is dropping out, just dumping it on the floor. And the next thing we see him doing is he's physically flipping over the tables. It's not just enough to chase the animals, to dump the money, but he's flipping the tables. This was not polite. I don't know what imagery you have of Jesus in your mind, but this is a physical action. He's not always the guy walking along the beach looking to cook fish on the fire. Sometimes there's anger associated and you see it here. So what you see is Jesus brought the effort. He literally threw them out of the place. He brought the effort to clean the house of God. So before thousands, Jesus makes a shambles of the bazaar. Historical records tell us that in the year 40 A.D., There were 260,000 sheep slain on Passover day. So you get that in your mind. A quarter million sheep. 
plus doves, plus oxen. You can appreciate the mess that's taking place in God's house. So what is it that clearly pushed his buttons? We see it right there when he says, my father's house. This is my house. So you see his feeling towards God and the holiness of God. This is mine. And everything that he saw, he heard, he smelled was repulsive to him to the degree that he begins cracking the whip. Peter wrote for us, 1 Peter 4.17, judgment must begin at the house of God. See, in society, the measure of any society is its relationship to God. And this society is allowing, if you will, the church to become so absorbed with the things of the world, trying to accommodate people's needs, they lost their focus. They totally were corrupted. So to Jesus, the issue is what's occupying the space that God's supposed to be occupying. There's a corruption here of God's space just like in the garden. And I think we're seeing God reacting to the corruption of this. So you might ask the question, where are the disciples during this action? Well, it tells us in verse 17. I think they're standing around watching this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's an Old Testament prophecy about when Messiah comes, what he'll be like. He's got so much passion for the things of God, he's zealous to the degree that he's willing boldly to flip over tables, to dump out other people's money, to crack the whip and chase them out of the room. That's how zealous your God is. And now the temple court is empty. Everybody's gone except for the guards and the authorities, and they come in and they challenge Jesus. Verse 18, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So probably the Sanhedrin, most likely because they had the responsibility for overseeing the court. They're like the high priest. They got, to, they got to oversee the temple area. So what we think of today when we think of our Supreme Court, think of the Sanhedrin. And they had guards that traveled with them. So they're rushing in and they're saying, give us an understanding of why you have the authority to do this. I find it really interesting. They're not concerned with the actions that are going on in the court because it has crept in over such a long period of time All these things of the world creeping in, they don't even realize that what Jesus has just done is cleaned God's house. They're so blind. So they're not requesting information here politely. They're demanding. They want to know, prove it! How do you get the authority to do this? Anytime that you do what you know God has called you to do, it will cause division. Every time God calls you to do something, it's going to cause division. People will not understand it. Do it anyways. That's what Scripture says. They've thrown down the gauntlet, and now Jesus has a chance to respond. Prove your authority. Look at how he responds, verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see John's commentary there? He added that on at the end for us to understand. 
John's able to put the pieces together because he's in his 90s looking back and he understood Jesus is not talking about the structure. They're thinking of Herod's temple. Jesus is talking about his body. This place where God dwells. This place of God's presence. So that's why he says, you want a sign? Kill me. You kill me and you'll see something you've never comprehended before beyond your imagination. You kill me and what you'll see is this temple will be raised up in three days. But they didn't get it. I understand, church, that the only place we have the authority to speak on behalf of God the only place is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He modeled it for us right there himself. He's speaking of his death and resurrection as the authority from God. You kill me, and I will rise it back up again. So we see this baffled the Jews. They couldn't understand this. And apparently his own disciples as well is what verse 22 shows us. Verse 22 says this, So when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Every time after Jesus is resurrected, whenever the disciples talk about him, they always speak of his death and his resurrection together. Not just his death, not just his resurrection. The two pieces put together. Because his death, what did it do? It rendered the temple obsolete. That's why in Matthew 27, you see the veil split in two. It's no longer necessary. The temple isn't needed. Herod's temple is not rendered obsolete. And in A.D. 70, it's destroyed. It is not needed. So his death rendered the temple obsolete and his resurrection established something in you. A new temple. See, people used to go to the temple. You are now the temple. This is what Scripture tells us. So look with me on the screen. 2 Corinthians 6.16 for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. There's that word, halak. I will halak among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And this is speaking of the church. So if your body is the temple of God, that means the things that we do to defile the temple are defiling God's temple. So if Jesus was this serious about a building, a physical structure, Herod's temple, how much more so do you think he is about how you and I use our bodies? That he calls us the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So what you feed the mind, what you feed the body, ingesting within results in some kind of action in your life. For these early God people in the temple, they had ingested into the temple this buying and selling environment, and it resulted in some action, a corruption of the environment. And Jesus looked at it and knew that, and that's why he purged it. So Jesus went after the external, flipping the tables in order to get to the internal, the things that were going on inside. So what are the external evidences in your life if your temple is defiled? Could it be the TV shows that you watch? The magazines that you read? 
the internet content that you download, even things as innocent as Facebook can be corrupting to our nature because Satan uses every single tool to try and steer us away from God the Father. So I see Jesus being passionate for two things. First of all, he's unashamed in his boldness for God. Nothing stops him from doing what he needs to do to purge God's house. The second thing, a pure heart. We need this pure heart because we can't clearly focus on worshiping God unless our focus is pure. So these two characteristics, to be bold and pure, require one very distinct element, and that is the effort. It's the one thing you can control. So you can control how much effort you put into your walk with God. So Jesus demonstrated, he brought the effort. What does it look like to bring the effort? Dump the tables, dump out the coins, chase out the oxen, chase those things out that are in the temple that are corrupting and taking you away from your focus with God. So my role is to be responsible for the effort. That's what I can bring. That's what you can bring. You can bring the effort. So I'm going to take you all the way back to Deuteronomy. This is the last verse, and it's the verse we started with today. After I read to you Genesis 3.8 about Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, the next verse I read to you was from Deuteronomy. And it said that God wanted to be in their midst to the degree that he walked among them. Look with me on the screen. This is the full verse now. Deuteronomy 23.14. Since the Lord your God, Halak, walks in your midst, in the midst of your camp, to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Do you see the action there? The action is the effort. Scouring the camp, your body, if you will. Those things that surround your world, that pull you away from God, scour that. Look to see if there's anything indecent among you. Identify what it is that's in your camp that corrupts you because your God really desires to walk with you. So when we hear this song, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear calling on my ear the Son of God discloses and He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I am His own. Cool. Michael's going to play that song for you right now. And the reason I've asked him to do this is I want you to see this as a moment that this song could actually be treated as a song of surrender. You can't come to the garden and walk with God unless you've surrendered those things that are corrupting your walk. So I'm going to ask you just where you're at, just to have a private time with God. Just spend time in prayer saying, God, I want to drive my stake in the ground right now. As he plays, you do that, and then I'm going to close in prayer.
Father, I know that this room is filled with eager listeners, but we want to be eager doers as well. Father, we want to know more about this nature of this relationship so that we walk with you appropriately. So I ask you would take these things we've studied this morning and seal them deeply within our heart. Because tomorrow is going to come and Tuesday and Wednesday. And the temptation will be to forget about whatever commitment we just made in the quietness of this moment. So God, I ask for the sake of our church that you would allow each person individually here just to drive the stake in the ground and say no more from this moment forward, Father, through your help and through your strength. I'm going to leave those things behind me that have corrupted my walk. Father, we look forward to the tightness of that relationship when we can behold your face and be in your presence physically in heaven. But until then, Father, we need your presence every single day as we walk this earth. So God, I ask you would take the quietness of this moment. Seal our hearts. Seal the desire that we have, the earnest desire to walk boldly and uprighteously before you. Give us the strength through the power of your Holy Spirit to leave those things behind. God, make it real for us. I ask this in the mighty name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ladies, as you leave this morning, there'll be children outside in the atrium that have flowers for you. Be sure and grab one of those as you head out. Have a wonderful Mother's Day.